上甚深微妙法，百千万劫难遭遇。我今见闻得受持，愿皆如来真实意。The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, friends in Dharma, welcome. Good evening.、Uh, we're here in Berkeley, California, and we're going to be、uh, explaining the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Adornment Sutra. It's the 29th of August, Saturday night, and、uh, all of you should have one of these.、Uh, Booklets in front of you, and you need to turn to page 64 and 65, and make sure that you've got one of those complete texts. We've been adding pages as we go, and some of these booklets slip through. So, if you don't have page 64, 65,、uh, you need to get another. You need to trade that in for the updated model. All right. So we're going to start by reciting the name of the Flower Adornment Sutra. Sometimes, and you'll find it on the front cover of your booklet. We do it in Chinese. Namo Dafangampo. Page 64. We're down at、um, 
the second line from the bottom in the Chinese, uh, the, the line that begins, Xin Yu Jian Qi Xiang Ying Fu Shu, that line. And in the English, it's over on page 65, their thoughts interact with stinginess and jealousy. We'll go all the way to the end of the paragraph over on 66 in Chinese. Let's, let's start with the Chinese. Xin Yu Jian Qi Jian Qi Xiang Ying Bu She Hang Zhao Zhu Qi Shou Sheng Yin Yuan Tan Hui Yu Chi Qi Ji Zhu Ye Ri Ye Zeng Zhang Yi Fen Hen Feng Chui Xin Shi Huo Chi Ran Bu Xi Fan So Zuo Ye Jie Dian Dao Xiang Ying Xiang Ying Yu Liu Yu Liu Wu Ming Liu Jian Liu Xiang Xu Qi Xin Yi Shi Zhong Zi Okay, now over to the right, page 65. Their thoughts interact with stinginess and jealousy, which they never abandon. They constantly create the conditions for future rebirth. Their greed, hatred, and stupidity create karma, which increases by day and night. The winds of hatred and resentment fan the fire of mind consciousness, whose blaze never ceases. All the karma they create is tied to inversion. The torrents of desire, existence, ignorance and views ceaselessly stir up the seeds of mind consciousness. All right. Okay, background. Um, bodhisattvas, these awakened beings, are talking about how hard it is to, to be... Uh, not yet liberated. They're talking about the state of beings that they call ordinary folks. And that would mean you and me, anyone who is not a sage. And a sage is not an ordinary person. Who's a sage? A sage is somebody who has already been liberated from uh, having to be reborn again and having no choice. Uh, I say it that way because they, they're, they're said to be two ways to come to our world here. One way is the wind of karma blows you here. That is to say, we're still, just like I described, we have no choice. We're reborn because we have to be. Our debts pull us back. The wind of our karma means the unfinished business that we ourselves create um, pulls us back. And we have to come back in a 
One person, Gary Snyder, the, the American poet, says, you have to come back in edible form, which is kind of an interesting way to think of it, right? You're, you're forced to come back in a form that can be eaten by something else. In other words, you're, you come back in a body that can, uh, can be born and die. The other way that we come back to this realm uh, is by choice. And that would be a living being, a person who uh, becomes on their vows. They come because they choose to. They are not born blown by the wind of karma. They can choose to be reborn anywhere they want to be because they're free from birth and death. They're free from that uh, um, the ties that bring them back into human form, edible form. Uh, or into the form of animals or ghosts or in the hell realm. So that would be an awakened being, a sage. So who is who? Do you know? Mm, if I, uh, one way to tell if I'm an ordinary being is to look at this description and see if any of these states happen to my mind. And um, I'll tell you more about that in our, in our brief introduction here. If, um, on the other hand, um, I have never had any of the afflicted states that um, are listed here in this description of ordinary fanfu, ordinary common people, then it's possible that you might be one of those other kinds of beings, one of those bodhisattvas, awakened beings, who come because of vows, who um, appear in this world because they choose to. So those are the two ways uh, that pe people can be here. Sages are that second kind. Sages are beings who um, are free of the pull of birth and death with some distinctions. And we spent a week up in Oregon looking at the Sharangama Sutra just, just the week before this last one. And we went through the, the various uh, rebirths that the the sages who are known as arhats, the sages who are, mm, whose birth and death is ended, but not entirely. Some come back seven times. Some come back once. Some come back never again. Some are arhats, completely uh, free of the, the wheel of reincarnation. So those are all sages. And what we're talking about there's another way to look at this scale of who is and who isn't and how do you know. Uh, I remember Master Hua said at one point, he said, if you want to look at, there's a very interesting way to look at who is an ordinary person and who's a sage. And you look at their ratio, how much of ignorance they have versus how much wisdom. Or another way to say is how much emotion they have versus how much wisdom they have. Beings in the hells are 100% ignorant. 100% and ignorant is a technical term. It means wuming. They have no light. They're 100% emotion. 0% wisdom. Buddhas are, on the other hand, 100% wisdom, 100% uncovered, lightened, fully awake, fully light, and 0% ignorance or emotion. Humans, us, most of us, are half and half. 
we have enough light to figure our way through situations, difficulty, we get education. But on the other hand, uh, things that touch our emotions can confuse us, can cover us over. Now, no judgment in that statement. It's not, therefore, emotion bad. Not That's not the point of it. But just it's a way of looking at our lives. Uh, the question to ask in this whole experience is, who am I? Do I have any say about why I'm here, about where I'm going? Do I know where I've been? If the answer is no, as certainly my answer is, then um, this is a helpful exercise. And this is a, a good place to, to begin, to, to, to tease out some answers to those questions. Who am I, ultimately? Um, do I have any freedom whatsoever other than to choose PC or Mac, you know, Coke or Pepsi? Used to, I used to be able to say Chevy or Ford. I can't say that anymore. How sad, isn't it? Um, now it's Toyota or Honda, right? So, right. Is it, you know, iPod or Pre? Uh, so the, that's a kind of freedom to be able to say, you know, Oh, I'm a Diet Pepsi. That's my drink. I'm loving my Big Mac. Um, and it's nice to have choice. That's probably better than having no choice. Well, on the other hand, um, those choices are only at the ends of our senses. There's no real freedom. Um, we still, when sickness comes, we still lie right down. Um, so, here we are. The Buddha is, is asking our Bodhisattva, his name is Vajra Treasury, a tr storehouse of diamond, adamantine, bright wisdom, to talk about the difference between ordinary people, fanfu, and awakened beings. What are awakened beings? Awakened beings are like in the first part of our paragraph on page 64-65. Th these are beings who look at the Buddha's teachings, at the Dharma that the Buddha is passing on. Not that it's Buddha's teaching circle R, possession of the Buddha, it's that the Buddha woke up and saw that these things were truly there in the world. This wisdom was there. What did he say? He says, through these bodhisattvas, the Dharma is profound, quiet, still, tranquil, empty, free of marks, free of care, undefiled, limitless, vast and great. Mighty fine, that Buddha's Dharma. When you hear it, it goes, ah, that's actually touched the bottom. That touches the bottom. That hits the spot. That insight, that wisdom, can't be reduced to anything less. That is the ultimate reduction. There's no further um, common denominator that can define that. That's the final definition. That can't be reduced by any catalyst or any solvent any further. That's actually the, the bedrock wisdom of the tribe of humanity and beyond humanity. So that's the Dharma. And when you get it, you go, huh, I'm home. Oh, finally, finally, through all the stuff that I've been sorting through that is popular for a while and then gets mm, becomes passé or in the sciences realm, a theory that really described the phenomenon we were experiencing until we realized that it 
could also be broken and needed a further theory to define things we couldn't, that we, we were experiencing, that we didn't have answers for. For example, how about, you know, Newton? Newton, Newton's various theories, thermodynamics, and laws of motion, etc., um, were considered so radical that the church was profoundly unhappy with, with the, the notion of physics. Earlier than that, it was the idea that, that the sun that was the center of the, the universe. The sun was the center of our galaxy. If you proposed that theory, you were sent to jail, you were called a heretic, you were in physical danger, you could be not only put in jail, you could be killed because that violated a sacred teaching of the church. That, in fact, the earth was the center and Jesus was the center of that. Now we look at those, the ideas that the earth is the center of the universe and think, well, it's so obvious. I can prove that tonight with my little trusty telescope. But at the time, that was it. That was as much as we knew. Um, the uh, uh, Newton was replaced. His theories no longer were sufficient to describe what the uh, quantum physicists were able to discover. And then quantum wasn't enough to describe what was happening because we could invent another experiment that would prove that quantum theories were incomplete. So every time we take those earlier theories and set them aside, they were hot, that was it. But then there's something deeper, something bigger. And we uh, learn bit by bit that, um, it's that we can't trust everything that we are told is true. Um, one of my greatest awakenings of that, and mind you, we haven't got to the sutra yet, I'm sorry, I'm riffing to try to introduce this, but um, we'll get there. Um, one of my great awakenings was that advertising couldn't be trusted. Um, it was, and this is embarrassing, but it's true, it was that uh, when I was coming of age, there's a, there's a time when you're really credulous, you're really naive and, and everything that you're told by adults has got to be true because they're big people, they know what's going on, don't they? And for me, it was discovering advertising. I was uh, in junior high school when Don Freeborn put on his dances at his house. And if you were in junior high and you wanted to be hip and you wanted to be in the in crowd, you had to be invited to Don Freeborn's parties. And if you weren't, you obviously knew you were in the out crowd and, you know, the songs didn't, I'm in with the in crowd. Those songs didn't apply to you. You could listen, but you were only a wannabe. And how did you get invited to Don Freeborn's parties? Well, that was the mysterious, you know, mysterious key and the secret. But one thing was certainly... Uh, had to do with being popular with girls. And how did you get popular with girls back in junior high school? Well, who knew? This was a great mystery, right? But it definitely had something to do with not having bad breath. Why? Because all the advertising told me that if I had, and I had, you had to learn a new word, halitosis. You know, here, you know, 16-year-old children learning about halitosis. Why? So they could get invited to the party. So how did you overcome halitosis and the dreaded 
nemesis of uh, was you bought cool blue micron oral antiseptic. Mouthwash. You needed micron mouthwash so that you wouldn't have halitosis, so that the girls would like you, so you'd get invited to the party and be popular. And every child at a certain point starts to ask the question, who is my friend? Who am I popular? Well, advertising understands that fear, fosters that fear, and creates a product that will make them money to allay that fear. So what did I do? I had an allowance. I don't know if how you grew up, but where I grew up, um, kids mostly, like over 13 or 14, would get an allowance, depending on what you know, what you how you work it out with your folks. My allowance was this was the late 50s and the 60s. I got 25 cents a week. It was my allowance, a quarter, 25 cents, and for that allowance, I had to cut the grass, and wash the car, and shovel the snow, and edge the lawn, and rake the leaves. Now in California that makes no sense whatsoever, right? (laughs) Leaves don't fall, there's no snow, and who has a lawn? You know, you've never seen one. Guaranteed, if you grew up in the Midwest, you were well acquainted with the lawn. The lawn is an institution. It's big and green, and it has to look like a golf course fairway or the neighbors talk. So I worked for my 25 cents a week by golly and when the snow fell you were out there with your shovel and it fell a lot and so this is something every week. It was hard work growing up that 25 cents a week. So I took my allowance for mm, two months, two months of allowance and went to the uh, Big Bear grocery store and bought a bottle of Micron oral antiseptic. I honestly did because why? I watched on the TV and realized that I too was prey to the demon of halitosis. You know, a 14-year-old kid, you know, come on. So I brushed my teeth, but I didn't want to miss Don Freeborn's party, so I realized that at that point I had better be sure that I was free of bad breath and so I'm secretly it never really worked you know couldn't quite tell it wasn't quite, you know and you think maybe I just put a coat over my head or something but you couldn't you can't smell your own bad breath really you know so anyway so I got some uh, mouthwash and didn't read the instructions and swallowed a mouthful <laughs> chugged it down <laughs> that can't be right that I can't be right. And then I asked an adult, and I said, no, you actually rinse it, you spit it out. Oh, okay. So I started smelling like Procter & Gamble's factory. That's for, you know. And uh, I was, I was invited to Don Freeborn's party. And it may or may not have anything to do with micron oral antiseptic, but I thought it did. So that was $2.00. Two months of allowance, well spent, you know. So then I discovered that actually getting invited to the party didn't have anything to do with, in fact, nobody cared if I had bad breath or not, because nobody got close enough to me to tell if I had bad breath. There, the secret was that Don Freeborn's parties included spin the bottle back then. And because this is a Buddhist lecture, I won't go into that. 
in the monastery. Spin the bottle had the, the possibility of kissing a girl. Oh my goodness. And that was like, if you were 14 or 15 years old, your mind just went tilted at that point, went blank, because that was way too much to consider. So, anyhow, at least growing up in the Midwest in the 50s when I was that age. So, Okay, so now I've told you my ugly secret about uh, my, my upbringing with advertising. The point of this is to say that it took a while to realize that I had been hooked by fear of unpopularity. And the Buddhist description of that is called chiu ming, seeking fame or popularity, wanting to be liked, which is natural at a certain age. You define yourself through your peers, usually after puberty, 12, 13, 14. Mm. Will you be my friend? You know, am I your friend? And you identify with a gang or with a group. And that can be exploited by people who want your money, who will sell you stuff for you so that you can have a style, you can fit in. And sure enough, I was hooked by that. A little later, I realized that popularity had nothing to do with mouthwash. I mean, if you can find you know, one teenager in 200 who has bad breath, then that's it probably is because he smokes or she smokes or something. But that doesn't have anything to do with the need for micronormal antiseptic. So there you go. You can't believe everything you hear. That's the point. So these uh, living beings, these ordinary common folks, are being described here by the Bodhisattva in contrast to the Buddha Dharma. The Buddha Dharma can be believed. The Buddha Dharma has this quality of touching bottom, as I said, hitting the mark, hitting home. When you hear the principle, you go, that rings true. That holds water, as we say. All these idioms in English meaning sounds right. That carries the mail. That's the real stuff. Living beings, on the other hand, we ordinary folks, and here's where it gets interesting. If you look on page 64 and count up from the bottom, one, two, three, um, four from the bottom, one, two, three, four. It's over to the right-hand side where it says, from that point all the way over to um, all the karma they create is tied to inversion. That long description, there are, uh, let's see here, Shindo is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah, so it's in the Avatamsaka, we always get ten. There's a list of ten descriptions, ten qualities that make up mm, the non-sage, the unawakened. And if you look at these, we're, we're not done with the list. Ordinarily, we'd go one by one by one. We've been taking this slowly because there's so much to say about it. And 
This is one of the places in our sutra where you get the whole ugly picture at once. The Bodhisattva is giving us a readout on what it means to be a fanfu, an ordinary person. This would also be uh, for zhongzheng, for, for sentient beings. It's the same, the same list. And all of these qualities are called fanna, afflictions. These are things that trouble body and mind. There, we have lots of names for it in English. Affliction is kind of a technical word. Not one that I was familiar with growing up. But if somebody had said, living beings, ordinary people, have all these miseries, I would have gotten it right away. This is what troubles us. This is where we go wrong. This is the stuff that makes us hurt, gives us the blues. This is it. This is the list. Let's take a look at them. Uh, ordinary beings, on the other hand, allow their thoughts to go wrong. That's the general. Their minds are full of wrong views. Ways of looking at my life and the world around me that, from the Buddhist point of view, go wrong. Why? Not because he thinks they're not right or he disagrees. It's because these things that we do with our minds don't correspond to principle. It's not the way it's made. It's not the way the world works. It's not the way people begin. But we go wrong. We get off track. We get lost in the forest. We fall off the rails. And this, one of the values of the sutra is that the Buddha is here saying, you know what? Your engine's out of tune. The engine of your life. You're putting black smoke out the exhaust pipe of your body and mind and you don't recognize it. You need a tune-up. You went wrong. You're doing it wrong. And if you do it right, if you get that tune-up, you'll be happier. You'll feel much better. Things will go well. You won't have those troubles, those blues, those pains, those miseries. So that's, that's what this is, this list of ways that we go wrong. What do we do? We let our thoughts go wrong. Number one, covered by a film of ignorance. It's like saran wrap. It's like shrink wrap. Ah, that's what it is. It's like shrink wrap. It just completely encapsulates us. And that's ignorance. Ignorance doesn't mean you just don't know anything. Ignorance here means, in Chinese is wuming, Sanskrit word is avidya, both the identical thing, wuming, no light, lacking light, lacking clarity. We're in the dark. That's ignorance, that's what it means. And when I say it's a technical term, what I mean is the Buddha is not giving us his opinion of us. He's not saying, I don't like him, he's ignorant. He, the Buddha is saying, you can't see. We can't see. He knows because why? The Buddha was recently a living being. The Buddha started out unawakened, unenlightened, but through hard work, got there. So he remembers what that was like. And he says, in the dark. We're in the dark. What happens if you have to run in the dark? Usually you trip over something. You don't know where your feet are going. You fall down. You lose things in the dark. That's us. right? We trip over stuff. We can't see it. We lose it. 
we forget. We're in the dark. So the Buddha says, that's the state of living beings. And it's like, what's it like? It's like shrink wrap. covers us on all sides. So we're here in the dark. They raise the banner of pride and ignorance. Because we don't see how things really are, we make our self big. Arrogance is big me, essentially. Pride, same thing. Pride, arrogance, stuck up. Those are the words that we used to use. Oh, she's so stuck up. Right? Those, it's all the same mistake from the Buddhist point of view, which is thinking that the me that I perceive as different from you is really important, central, and big. The Buddha says, no, no, it's not a big mistake. And not just the Buddha, but most spiritual classics in the world say pride is the pride feeds sins. Right? That's a good Christian vocabulary. That pride goeth before a fall, meaning that it precedes trouble. If you have pride, trouble's right behind. That's what that means. So it's a it's a problem. And as we get this list, we think, man. I don't feel very comfortable because the Buddha is here talking about ignorance and arrogance and pride. Mm, Why is he being so hard on us? Why is he being so mean? I thought this was compassion. How come I feel uncomfortable in the sutra lecture? Well, um, hang on to that question. That's a really valid question. Hold on there. There's more ahead. If you think you feel bad now, just wait. There's a lot more. You're going to get miserable pretty quick. The Buddha is clinically accurate. They are trapped by a net of craving and travel the dense forest of flattery and deceit until they can no longer extricate themselves. What a scary description. Trapped by a net of craving. Um, Think network. Network, this internet goes out, 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 out. Replicating, replicating. Just sending out these strands with a tie, an interstice, this knot right there that just goes out and replicates. Connects things and you get all tied up in this net of craving, which is everything we see we want. Everything we see we move towards, come out for. Mmm, that looks good. And it traps us because what we lose our way back. If you want everything, the corollary of that is nothing satisfies. It's really hard to ever be content when we're in this constant parade of desirable stuff. Um... I remember, I'm old already, to talk back about this, to look back. I remember when things that my dad would bring home were, was good stuff. My dad would bring home, I, I think I told this story, my dad tested me at one point with uh, knowledge of quality stuff. It was, did I know what was good? And at the time, 
All I knew was he was doing something to me. I didn't know what it was. But I knew there was a test going on. It was my birthday. And I was 14, 13. And like the other guys in my neighborhood, I was a four-season jock. Um, I was an athlete. And we just played in the neighborhood. But we definitely followed the seasons. And it was baseball. And you knew when it started. Season started. And when it was over, and it was time to play football. And we played football. And every, we, every day played football with the guys. And then it was basketball season. And you knew when it was basketball season and when it stopped. And then, mind you, this is a little exotic, but we had hockey season. My dad grew up in French Canada, in Quebec, and I knew the Montreal Canadiens from childhood, you know. And the Maple Leafs and the Detroit Red Wings and Chicago Blackhawks. We knew them all. And hockey season, luckily, next door, Mr. Frisbee used to flood his side yard. Uh, and it was cold enough in Toledo that we had an ice pond right next door. And uh, it wasn't big enough to really play you know, serious hockey, but I had hockey skates and hockey stick and hockey puck, and we got out there... And, of course, we all sang the Canadian National Anthem every morning with our hockey sticks. No, we didn't. I'm kidding about that part. Um, there was American hockey teams, you know. Now it's so ridiculous that there's hockey teams in San Diego. I can't believe it. There's no ice in San Diego. Keep it real. So, in Florida. Hockey teams in Florida. What's this world coming to? Anyway, uh, we were four-season athletes. And um, my dad... Uh, well, the mostly because we played in the street, and baseball and football and basketball on the court, of course, but we played football on the street always. So our footballs tended to be rubber footballs, rubberized, full size but rubber, so that they wouldn't, you know, real footballs are leather, and you the way we played, your football wouldn't last a season because it's on the concrete and on the cement of the street, in between the parked cars. And uh, so we had rubber footballs, mostly. And they were, you know, good. Uh, they lasted. They, they could get abraded and scraped, and they wouldn't pop or break. So uh, we still wanted regulation footballs. We wanted NFL-certified footballs. So one year, I told my dad for my birthday, I would really like a real National Football League regulation leather football, please. And so my dad, so he, my dad was a, uh, an athlete as well. And so he uh, thought that was a reasonable request for a birthday gift. So he, uh, one day came back. This was the day of my birthday. And got out of the car and threw me this football. I was a glue-fingered end. My, my hero was, was uh, Raymond Berry from the Baltimore Colts. And of course, his quarterback was, you all know, Johnny Unitas. Yes, Johnny Unitas. Five stars. Never mind that you're dated, as old as I am. That's right. Raymond Berry and Johnny Unitas were the great quarterback and, and split-end duo for the Baltimore Colts. Anyway, so my dad threw the... And I gave him my best Raymond Berry pass catch. 
He said, now, he said, this football is not NFL certified. He said, you'll notice that the laces are plastic. They're not thong laces. It's a good ball, but the store was out of NFL footballs. He said, today's your birthday, and if you want it, you can have it. And here it is. I looked at it. Sure enough, it, had, it was a autographed. It was a Johnny Unitas signature ball, but it was not an NFL ball. It was a cheaper ball, not as good. Wouldn't last as long. Lighter. Uh, he said there wasn't one in the store. They had to order it, and it was going to come next week. So the question was, could I wait a week for the real football? Or would I, that I want the gratification of having my birthday present on my birthday? And so it was like... <sighs> sweat, you know... Here it was in my hand, not the real thing. Or here it was. And I could take it out and you know, play with it that day. So I, I looked at my dad and noticed he was watching me. And so I knew he wanted me to wait. So I threw it back. Oh, wait. A week. You know, and sure enough, so on that day the guys came over. You know, Get your football. No. You know, next week. So, okay, okay, oh, okay. So, for a kid, you know, that week is endless every day. And so then, there's interesting, I mean, the way it ends up is a great story. My dad uh, came back one night, uh, a week later, and this was the appointed day, you know, and it's now a week after my birthday. And he comes in with his briefcase and I'm watching, you know, looking at this briefcase as a bulging, you know, nothing. And it's like, could he, you know, what happened? Could it? Could he have forgotten? No way. My dad says, oh, by the way, there's something out in the car for you. Go take a look. You know, <laughs> rocket <laughs> flashing out of the car, you know. Here's this unbelievably beautiful, NFL, Johnny Unitas, leather football, you know. And it's heavy, and it's like when you catch this ball, it, you've really caught something. In punting this football, it hurts your foot because it's a real certified NFL pro-quality football. But I brought this out, and it was like glowing, you know. And I, I was it really, I was in the neighborhood, man, for at least that season, I was the guy with the real NFL football. <laughs> Better than mouthwash, let me tell you, among the guys. Of course, guys don't kiss, but you understand. So that was the real thing. And so he was like, my dad said, you know, okay. And he said, you could wait. There you go. So my point is to say that uh, I was raised to know quality and what was the difference and what was stuff was made to last back then you didn't buy something thinking that you were going to get another one in you know when this wore out there was no such thing as upgrades didn't exist you bought a product and you expected to use it and use it 
until it wore out. And then you might patch it. You know, you might fix it, repair it. Um, jobs were meant to last as well. What a shock to have one of my students at GTU, one of my um, Buddhist Christian dialogue students, a Korean gentleman, a Korean Christian who's a, getting his masters in divinity. Why? Because he said, you know, where I grew up in Korea, when you got hired, you were hired for a lifetime. You joined the company. The company took care of you. You were going to retire from that company. Maybe in a better job, not necessarily, but that company provided you your entire life cycle of things, from health care to picnics to, you know, gold watch. That was the way it was. He said, do you know? He said, I took my computer skills, Silicon Valley, looking for a job, and this was in the, in the, during the bubble, and he said, I got, he said, I'm a coder, I'm skillful. He said, I got uh, 18 job offers, and there wasn't one of them that told me my job was going to last longer than 18 months. Because why? We were going to go IPO, cash out, and liquidate, and retire millionaires. 18 months, the company was going to be gone in 18 months. How much the more my job? He said, I, got, I couldn't stand that. I, I needed more than just a job that was going to last a year and a half before the company was gone. So I decided I was going to come. I figured God wasn't going to go away, so I thought I would get an MD instead. <laughs> that was probably more job security than I was going to find in Silicon Valley. So I thought, yeah, right. How, how is it possible to not be trapped in the net of craving in a world where... All your senses are being hooked out for stuff that doesn't last. That you know is going to go away and be replaced and be upgraded. Including your, you know. Now, if you can take that through to the other end and say, yeah, there's a good Dharma teaching in that because not only is my job going to be gone, how about your body? But nobody, that's too much. You know, nobody can follow make that connection so that the body itself is going to be recycled. That's a little too unnerving. But the idea somehow that, that it's normal or natural to buy stuff that you know is going to go bad when you buy it and it's built to go bad so that you can buy the new one soon. Right? Where is Photoshop now? Creative Suite 4? Is that it? 4? 5? Wait till four is wait till Adobe needs more money. No, let us know that their hand's going to be put into our pocket, and you need five, and it's revolutionary with all these new features. You know, uh-uh. so the the net of craving has trapped us, and it's not necessarily healthy. This may not be the best way to to use our life our lifetime. As Gary Snyder again says, trading our precious time for things. We travel the dense forest of flattery and deceit until we can no longer extricate ourselves. Um, 
we lectured this last week, and it got more feedback than any other single item in the sutra for months. I got four or five emails from people who said, you know, that really disturbed me because I never thought of flattery and deceit as being bad or undesirable in any way. That's something that was brand new to me to realize that how much I am uh, lost in the dense forest of flattery and deceit and can't find my way out. That's very interesting. So I thought it would be helpful to um, explain that a little more. I, I went over it kind of, I hit the tops of the waves last week. I didn't, I wasn't very comprehensive or thorough. So I would like to say a little more about flattery uh, so that at least some people can calm their minds and not, not be so... Um, well, it's good to have the response. It's good to have people, you know, um, touched by these principles. That's what I want, is that people take the sutra into their lives and make, you know, poke around, discover what are the... What are the if you tug on this string... What does it connect to? That's very helpful. But I need to do it thoroughly so, so we don't leave people uns, uneasy. Okay, forest of flattery and deceit. If flattery and deceit is considered a forest wherein we can get lost. Can't get ourselves out of it. Let's come back to that. Tonight, our first phrase is Xin Yu Qian Qi. That should be Jian. Their minds, their thoughts interact with stinginess and jealousy, which they never abandon. Um, stinginess, fearing I won't have enough, holding on to things. The, um, why is this an affliction? In a time of economic pressure where stuff costs too much, isn't it good to use things sparingly? Isn't frugality good when times are hard? Yes, of course, frugality is good, not just when times are hard, but wise use of material, using enough and not wasting, is a source of blessings. Fu qi, blessings, come from using enough and not wasting. Doesn't mean stinginess or kind of tight and pinched. That's not the Dharma. The Buddha is in no way tight or pinched. But using things wisely and not wasting is always good. Stinginess is not that. Stinginess is having an opportunity to give and not doing so. What happens in that situation, stinginess is the opposite of generosity. When you're stingy, what happens is the nature gets afflicted. These are all called Afflictions. These are all troubles. And it's interesting to think of stinginess as something that troubles the nature. 
something that covers over that light. It becomes part of ignorance because it's pinched. The opposite, generosity, giving, giving joyfully, sharing, passing on, allowing others to benefit from abundance is a blessing, it's a virtue, and it leads to the to wholesome affinities. It leads to connecting our nature to living beings. What else it does is it reduces ego. Generosity, every time we give, we give a little piece of the me that is afraid and wants mine more, it gives that away. And it allows the true nature of our complete, total interconnection to surface. When we give the self away, we see how much we're connected to everybody, not just humans, but to all beings. Holding on, tightly pinching, on the other hand, locks me into this me only, me lonely, wrong view. Okay, so that's how stinginess becomes an affliction. All right, what else? Jealousy. Ah, we've talked about this a lot in the other sutra lectures over the years. Um, jealousy, says the Buddha, is an affliction. This is a fanna. This troubles the mind. It's the, it's the mind used wrong. Because why? It's not true. It's not true. Let me just say one, one comment about jealousy and then we're going to move on because we've talked about it at length. Think about all the energy that we use in order to have one jealous thought. We have to, instead of, what would be default wisdom, default health, is feeling full and content feeling light and connected, at ease, centered, balanced, full, wealthy, peaceful. All of those feelings are the health of the mind don't need true happiness is needing nothing. Okay? That's real wealth. has nothing to do with stuff. But that feeling of being full and content in the middle, that's a state that you might seek, worth seeking. The Buddha would say that's our original state. Think of a one-year-old child when they're peaceful and happy. They just have this kind of, you know, balance and beaming. The world loves me, right? Mom just feeds me every time I cry. You know, I'm the center. I'm happy. You don't see a child in the fullness, an infant, a baby, right? Looking out and and finding fault with others, struggling. Right? So, 
What happens from that fullness? In order to have one act of jealousy, we have to, number one, look out and see, oh yeah, there are other people here. Oh look, there's so-and-so. We have to identify that person. Then we have to look carefully at that person and notice something they're doing. We have to come back to myself, compare what I've noticed, check and see if it's the same. Go back out and judge again whether they may or may not have something that I should have or want or need. Come back and get a negative judgment. Right. They got it. I want it. I need it. I'm jealous. Then that thought rises. And at that point, it's an affliction. So there's this looking out, looking back, looking out, looking back. Judging. Affliction. All that stuff has to happen before jealousy comes up from the gallbladder, tasting green, bitter, like bile. That gag you, kind of, after you vomit, that flavor, you know, that's, that, that's the flavor of jealousy. That bilious green, it's really green, green with envy. It's really the nature of that, of that state. That's a lot of work. From what? From content, centered, balanced, full, not needing, right? From there we go, oh yeah, look at so-and-so. Oh, what's she wearing? <gasps> That's, I own that dress. She looks better in it than I do. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, you know, or, you know, you mean he got that new BMW, the one I just saw advertised? How does he afford that? You know, look at what I'm driving. Last year's BMW. Look, wait, oh, hmm, he looks really happy. I'm pissed. You know, that's just, you know, it's so much work. Those thoughts move really fast, but it's before jealousy happens. And if you've never had stillness of mind, then maybe it seems really quick. If you've sat still to where you've seen your thoughts move, you recognize how much travel you've done in order to accomplish one jealous thought. Jealous and envy. Shifu, Master Xuanhua would always say, Du ji zhang ai. Once you're jealous, the next thing is obstruction, which is more work, which is you go from noticing all that and then having that to finding a way to obstruct, finding a way to even the score that you perceive is now in his favor, her favor. You're behind. You're the loser. They're the winner. I want to get even. Du ji zhang ai. Blocking that happiness, which is big, big work, big trouble. So all, that's why it's called an affliction, because the Buddha is saying, yeah, you're way out from your own nature. Can you do this? Can you catch your outflowing, charging energies that's going outside and do something different? Can you say, sui shi, 
功德。Can you say I rejoice in that person's fortune, in that person's blessings, in that person's goodness, in that person's talents? They're having that ability, that honor, that success, that thing makes them very happy. Makes me happy too. The world is brighter because that person has succeeded, been, been praised, got promoted, got the thing, is in the center, won, and I didn't win. The world is better, brighter. By that success, how nice! Right? That's the Buddha's antidote to jealousy. It's called Sveshi, joyful support. Joyfully support other people's success. In fact, somebody else's success has nothing to do with me necessarily until I look out there and turn green and think of a way to bring them down, take them down a peg or two. Right? Which is like that's an, a real Sad thing that we ordinary people do. I told the story about when that happened to me. I totally didn't think that I was capable of jealousy until I was in a situation where that came rolling right out of my guts, and it was bitter. What a shock to see that I was jealous of some other monk who was getting the attention of the teacher when I was being pushed out of the nest and ostracized by the same teacher. Oh, it was just a setup so I could identify. Oh, you know what? I really have that inside. How ugly that is! Was I born to do this? You know, what about my bodhisattva's vows when I'm here plotting to take down some clown who's getting the praise that I should be getting? You know, oops. Ah, living beings are numberless. I vow to say them all except that one. <laughs> Sooner he falls, the happier we'll be. Not. <laughs> That's a brand X Bodhisattva's vow. So, what a good teacher who can bring that out of me in a controlled situation. Of course, Master Hua, being skillful as he was, he rubbed my nose in it. <laughs> Jealous, huh? You know. How do you like it? Tastes ugly, terrible. <laughs> so, good teacher. Oh, boy, do I remember that feeling, that back of the throat bitter flavor of jealousy. And the person I was jealous of, I mean, he's a person, I'm a person. And then to be able to say, yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm pleased that you got that stuff. I would like it too, because it's good stuff. You got it. Good. How nice. And then crossed over. You know. But you have to meet the jealousy with the same amount of energy. You have to joyfully support with the same amount of energy that that outflowing jealousy, and boy, it goes so fast. And that evaluation, that checking out, you know, <laughs> that's such an insidious thing, you know, checking out. And then, Comparing, judging it, comes that turn of state. That's called affliction. Call what? Their thoughts go wrong. Th they allow their thoughts to go wrong. 
and thank the Buddha for saying, oh, oh, that's called affliction. You don't want, you don't want that. It's not going to help you at all. It's not going to wake you up. It's going to cover you over in a film of ignorance. And it's just the mind used wrong. Ah. Okay. Their thoughts interact with stinginess and jealousy, which they never abandon. Next, they constantly create the conditions for future rebirth. What would be the conditions for future rebirth? A condition for future rebirth would be a death. You actually go out and from this state, the default state that the Buddha is talking from is stillness. Is a state where everything's okay. Things are okay if you can sit calmly, really feel awake, alive, centered. One way to do it is to say, you know, what's the phrase in English? Count your blessings. That's a way to, to get there. You say, thank goodness my parents brought me here. Thank goodness their parents brought them here. Thank goodness I have food in my stomach. Thank goodness that there's no bullets flying through the air. Thank goodness I can drink the water from the tap. Don't take that for granted. And it's a public utility. It's not owned by some water company. Thank goodness that the food that I eat is nourishing. Right? I remember, I remember, I came back from Barcelona and after the parliament just five years ago and uh, told the story of the young woman who came from uh, Kenya and she, this is the first time she'd ever been out of Africa. She was this brilliant 18-year-old girl who uh, single-handedly was raising, what was it, eight children because of their parents had died of AIDS. And she told the story, this is we were talking about water in this particular circle. She talked about having the lake. It wasn't Lake Tanzania, but it was one of them. It wasn't that big one. She goes to the lake and she knows that the water that she pulls out of the lake, if she feeds it directly to the babies that she is raising, will cause them to have diarrhea in a matter of hours. And it's the kind of diarrhea that won't stop and they will die. So she couldn't accept this, although that was the style. Because there's no, there's no wood to go gather to build a fire, to boil it, if you had a pot. So, you know, and she said, yeah, well, I just, I couldn't accept this. And so I asked all the elders to, to come up with a different way. And they had, luckily there was a UN, uh, a UN volunteer who had a method of detoxifying, purifying the water so that we could drink it. But we had to go, you know, she said, the first thing we did was I had to tell everybody in my village not to go defecate and urinate in the same water they drink. And they said, well, what will we do? That's, we've been doing that forever. What are we going to do? 
And so I, we found a better way to do that. And then we had to go find the companies that had been putting the runoff from the mines into the lake that made us sick. And then we, you know, step by step she outlined how she organized her village to create clean water. And then she had to teach people how to go down and only drink the water that they themselves purified. And then getting other groups. And because she, at age, when she started this, she was 16 years old, she became the teacher in the village because she had been talking to people who gave her the literacy and on and on. And so this outstanding young woman made her way to Barcelona to talk to the Parliament of World's Religions about, about water. And she admitted that when she got to Barcelona, uh, she had never turned a tap. She'd never seen water come out of a pipe, ever. She was so amazed. And of course, she'd never sat on a toilet, never seen one. When she got to the Hamburg airport, flying up from Nairobi, too much, you know, all at once. So, how amazing, what a blessing. Count your blessing, you know. And the fact that she had so much goodness and, and wisdom that she broke with the way things were done. So she wound up becoming the teacher of her village. You know, not just about water, but about so much. So she was, and she met, you know, in these circles of people from all over the world talking. She uh, found these uh, women. One was from Geneva, one was from New York, one was from Rio, who just thought this young woman was uh, someone they wanted to support. And so they took her under their wing and made sure that she had resources and textbooks and water purifiers and, and uh, pencils with paper and so that she could go back and, and teach and they put her through school. And all. So anyway, it was a wonderful story. But um, I remember just, you know, being in the circle of eight people uh, when she, in a quiet voice, courageously told her story. And so we had to lean forward to listen, you know. And then the story that came out it just made you so appreciative of the fact that here in the Bay Area we actually can drink the tap water. Many people in LA do not. Many people in LA advise you not to drink tap water. Uh, you boil it, you filter it, you buy bottled water, Alhambra, sparklets, you know. So, uh, water in a very short time will be more valuable than oil. No doubt. So, anyway, count your blessings. How to avoid being jealous is count your blessings. Just say, no, I'm full of these blessings in my life right now. Why do I have to run out my eyes? Jealousy is often visual. Right? You shut your eyes. How do you know that person over there has got something you want? Right? So you look out and you see, go out there and you gather garbage with your eyes and bring it back and judge it and then create this stinky state of mind called jealousy. Right? Instead, say, oh man, I am just 
coasting on this mountain of good things that I got from my parents, from my past blessings, from my community. Why? Why? Go out and trash that and find something to be unhappy about in that image of that person whose state I have no idea about, but they have something that I think I should have, so I'm going to get jealous of them. You know, it's like, oh man. That's why the Buddha calls us ordinary common people right? instead of sages. Sages rest in the fullness of blessings, fullness of wisdom, and strive to benefit and bless the world with the thought of, you know, oh, I'm so happy that that person has accomplished that goal, that success, that mark. Suishi, you know, joyfully support. So anyway, these are all called afflictions. The mind, this is why it says, their thoughts go wrong. Ordinary people, their thoughts go wrong. They constantly create the conditions for future rebirth. When we do this, when we go out and create this jealous, obstructive thought over somebody and then put it into action, do something based on that, we get a debt. And it's not done for free. Although it's just a thought, it can manifest in action where you plan to trip them up. You plan to take them down. You gossip about them. You plant a story. You plot to stop their success. Then there's karma. That's a deed. There's action there. Even in this, the mind phase, in the, in the seed state in our hearts, there's trouble made in the mind. It's disturbed. You are solidly in place. You have enthroned the self by comparing it to something else and then finding trouble with that, blah, 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 back and forth. The Buddha said, wrong direction. Wrong direction. You want to reduce the self. You don't want to make that self the center and then go out and act on it. As soon as we do, we create something. And the seeds for future rebirth are thoroughly planted down because the self is powerfully in charge at that point. The alternative is to say, nah, you know, I'm, I'm, my body is closed, my stomach is full, you know, it's like I don't take any of it too seriously because I'm getting older, you know, there's nothing lasts long and I'm not here to use this time in a human body to find fault with everything around me and to plot for its overthrow. That's the wrong direction. That's ignorance. So if you can have those thoughts and then use this temporary, transient, fleeting experience and say, and bless you. May you go from happiness to happiness. Then the Buddha would say, ah, you're not only creating goodness, you're reducing the ego's hold on the whole thing. That's wisdom. That's what a bodhisattva would do, untying the self instead of putting it in the center and giving it a, a weapon to shoot at, to shoot with. So, to not create the conditions for future rebirth, what do we do? We, here's, this is important. When the thoughts of jealousy arise, they did strongly in my mind when I was in that condition where somebody was getting something I thought I wanted. There's a phrase in, in the Dharma that Master Hua would always bring up, which is very, very helpful. In Chinese it goes, 不怕, 
念起，只怕觉迟。Don't be afraid that thoughts arise; only fear that you wake up to them too late. Okay, so the fact that a jealous thought arises in my mind, the fact that last week I noticed that I'm flattering people for my own benefit, so I can kind of get them where I want them. If we can catch those thoughts rising, that's good. Not that they're there is good, but ordinary beings have these thoughts. If we catch them, number one, that means we've got some stillness in our mind to notice those thoughts rising. Two, use an antidote and cross those thoughts over. That's technical jargon, right? To cross a thought over. What do I mean? Counter it, right? What are paramitas? Paramitas are methods for counteracting. Wrong thoughts, wrong afflicted habits. That's precisely what cultivation is. When we say living beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. Those are the living beings we're saving. Quote. How? Saying, man, jealousy stinks. Actually, it tastes like bitter poison. I'm not satisfied with that thought that I just had in my. Mind space. I'm gonna instead of letting it rest, I'm going to. And often I think of, I visualize composting it, right? Plucking up that thought like you would a weed, dropping it onto the compost heap and letting it go back to organic matter. Scherfer would often say, if you don't have afflictions, you won't have any bodhi. Awakening comes from composted afflictions, right? It's the same stuff, only trans- turned over. However many afflictions we have, that's how much enlightenment is potentially there. But you have to weed your mind garden. You have to get in there and pluck up those weeds, compost them. You have to use an antidote. Counteracting thought that is equally powerful. Jealousy is crossed over by joyful support. Okay, stinginess is crossed over by generosity. Flattery is crossed over by sincerity. If you don't mean it, don't say it. If you say it, mean it. Okay. Now, some of the things. Yes, Jason.、Um, uh, I, I think that's a really good idea, but I also have heard kind of like some advice in terms of kind of akin to meditation, which is you don't want to give it more energy by attending to those thoughts, by kind of like engaging in it, kind of like having a conversation. And and what about that? And so. That, and and so you're asking me. Okay, Jason's question was: He had heard in Chan the discussion of when thoughts arise, you don't want to get engaged, you don't want to engage them, you don't want to pay so much attention to them. Okay, let me clarify. Good question. We talked about meditation as having in the Chan school two methods. One is called calming, one is called contemplating. 
What you're talking about, Jason, is the calming technique, um, which is the, the real Chan or Zen technique, which is as soon as a thought rises, you do away with it. You do it in. You don't let it rest. They say that uh, not the slightest, not a trace of thinking is going to stain my Bodhi nature. Okay, that's the phrase. That's one method. The other method, contemplating, says that you, in your stillness, you notice every thought. You don't, as soon as a thought moves, you ask typically who, you know, or who's mindful. You don't do that. You observe. Jealous thought. Jealous thought breaking up. Jealous thought's gone. You observe it rising and falling. Just observe it. You don't comment. You don't act. You don't get involved either. But you identify clearly the presence of thoughts. So one is zhi, one is guan, right? One is shamatha, one is vipassana. In both cases, you don't engage. One is you don't even bother. You just thought moves, you just who you're on it instantly, like the cat at the mouse hole, right? And in the second one, you observe. The dispassionate observer watches. Okay. In both those situations, you don't engage. I'm talking about the mind that is not in Chan. Okay? Because you can be, you know, in the workplace. Alright? And you notice somebody got promoted. Or everybody except a few got pink slipped, you know, and you might be one of those. So how do you react to the people who avoided the acts? Okay, you're not in charge. How do you respond? Okay, so this is for the, this is portable cultivation. This is 24-7 cultivation. So, okay, so... The paramitas, these methods of cultivation, are specifically designed to counteract negative thoughts. They're there to deal with what happens when these thoughts arise. And if you're watching, I maintain these thoughts will arise. I didn't thought, think I was jealous until that stuff rose up. And man, I was scrambling for my Dharma lesson, what am I going to do with that? Because that's an ugly, ugly thought that I didn't identify with, and there it was. So the answer was, Seishi, joyful support. Um, there are 84,000, they say, Fa Man, Ba Wan Si Tian Fa Man, 84,000 methods of practice to Dui Zhi, Ba Wan Si Tian Fa Man, to counteract 84,000 afflictions. The multitude. 84,000, 85,000, 83,000, doesn't matter. Multitude of things that can go wrong in my thinking. There are all those methods that are there to do that, to counteract, to cross over, to neutralize, to compost, if you will, all those wrong thoughts. And a, a skillful meditator needs them all. But if we don't have presence of mind, that's a good 
Western phrase. If we don't have enough stillness to notice that we're feeling jealous, stingy, flattering, obstructive, then this is all somebody else's psychology. Right? So this is based on the idea that we're actually watching our thoughts and we admit that sometimes I have thoughts that are real ringer, lulus, stinky thoughts. That's healthy. It's not depressive. It's not negative. It's not, you know, uh, negative. All the things that, that Buddhism gets labeled as, it's what, it's real. It's do-it-yourself wisdom psychotherapy. That's what's going on in these sutras. The Buddha is saying, yeah, admit that you can come up with real nasty thoughts. Don't be afraid. Don't think you're evil. You're not going to hell. The Buddha's not going to hate you or kick you out of the Buddha's family. Say, no, no, no. That's really my own jealousy. I'm going to do something about it because why? I can. Yes, we can. Take care of our stinking, afflicted thoughts and the world is better for it. As soon as we do, guess what? We are stepping on the Bodhisattva path. We are taking charge of our own afflicted living beings, settling the matter right inside my mind and cleaning the world up one thought at a time. That's real heroic work. Doesn't get any applause, doesn't get any parades down Fifth Avenue. Most people don't know you're doing it, but you know, and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas know, and the people around you know that you don't seem to be so pissed as you used to be all the time, always afflicted, always upset. Why? Because you're busy cleaning up the closet, the sewer of your own mind. That's what these sutras are for, is to get us feeling powerful enough to actually stand up to your own anger. How hard that is. Because who does it? Who tells you how to do that? Not the heroes on TV, you know, or in the film. So, that's when, when we get the encouragement to do this, it's so healthy and so rewarding to, to realize that we can. And the Buddha and the Bodhisattvas and our teachers are models of people who have done that. You said, yeah, you can. It's quiet and dirty work and it is the real thing. This is what the Buddha Dharma is here to teach us to do. Not to have us put on red robes and big beads and go, Amitabha, ha, 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 om money, pay me, om. Give me more money. Oh, money, pay me. Oh, money, pay me. <laughs> Not less of that. You know. I mean, Namo Amitabha is a wonderful thing. And it will also help you in afflictions. But if, it, if Buddhism only goes out to the symbols and the externals, we miss the point. We never knew the point. We, we lost the point. Okay? So, how... Wonderful to have a teacher who sits you down long enough to open the sutras and say, see what it's telling you? The sutra's telling you, you, you can clean your mind. You can heal yourself. 
you can return from thoughts that went wrong to thoughts that go right. You can. And when you do, you're powerful in goodness, powerful in virtue. Okay, time is actually up, and we did get two sentences tonight. Boy, oh boy. We are going to start next week with greed, hatred, and stupidity create karma. Now, I mentioned last week, and we didn't do it yet, that what happens on page 67 and 60, 66 and 67 is it goes into the 12 links of conditioned arising, sometimes called the 12 links of conditioned co-production, which is the Buddha's real creation. Um, incredibly powerful uh, description of mm, how, the, how living beings and the mind are made and how to how to turn it right when it goes wrong. of Ulambana, that city of 10,000 Buddhas. Those tables here in the center of our Buddha hall are also about Ulambana. Talk about that in just a minute. We're going to dedicate merit first before we go on. make a wish and dedicate the merit. Inspiring voice.
so we'll have more pages and that's up to me to get those out so we can uh, increase our the, the size of our booklets we're expanding as we go so we will have plenty of sutra to lecture tomorrow is the 30th and it's Ulambana the celebration of Ulambana and it's let's see the actual day is Thursday the 3rd of September but so we can do it with everybody on on the weekend. We said it, we run it ahead. There will also be a refuges and precept ceremony tomorrow at City of Ten Thousand Buddhas. Ulambana is uh, for people who don't know. It's an annual event in the Buddhist world that commemorates the. Uh, the awakening of the Buddha's disciple named, great name, Maha Madhgayayana, great Madhgayayana, who woke up and saw that his mother was suffering in the hells. Mom hadn't done very well. And that in itself was kind of a shocker, the idea that that mother could fall, that her spirit, her soul could uh, accrue enough bad karma that her son, although already a sage, couldn't save her from falling. Turns out that she had uh, taken many, many, many lives because she loved caviar. She, Every spoonful of caviar takes all those little lives, little fish eggs. And she also slandered. She would lead people away from wisdom by saying that very wholesome things were bad. That's a mistake to do that. So doing that a lot led her to lose her human body. Magalhães saw her down there because when he woke up, his wisdom eye was open. <coughs> He saw that mother was in the hills and it disturbed him grievously as of course it would. So he asked the Buddha what to do and the Buddha said, ah, my strength isn't enough, said the Buddha. And that may be the case, maybe the, there's more to the story, but the Buddha said, uh, there is a method, however, which is if you can get all the Sangha together, all the monks and nuns, and get the lay people to make offerings to them, the Sangha will recite together mantras, sutras, and holy names, sacred names. And then that accumulated goodness will be enough to rescue your mother. So Madhvayayana did that. He got everybody together and and set a made a big banquet. And the lay people made offerings of the best of everything they had. And uh, 
the Sangha recited, and sure enough, Madhvayana's mother was removed from eons of suffering. She was crossed over into the heavens. And along with her, lots of other beings were saved. So Madhvayana said, wow, that's great, it worked, fantastic. He said, would this work for other living beings as well? The Buddha said, very good, Madhvayana, I was hoping you would ask. Yes, indeed, he said, every uh, 15th day of the 7th lunar month, if you will gather people together and make these offerings, uh, living beings will be crossed over. Uh, so this is called the day of the Buddha's rejoicing the, because he, the Buddha is happy when people plant blessings and then recite to uh, end the suffering of those who are, as they say, ulambana means hanging upside down. People who are hanging upside down in states of distress. So the sutra that tells this story is called the Ulambana Sutra and it's recited uh, tomorrow, City of 10,000 Buddhas. And we could, um, I don't want to promise to do it before I check it out, but I'll say this, if, if we can do it here on Thursday, um, I'll let people know, okay? Um, check back, keep those cards and letters rolling in, and we'll let you know. Uh, whether or not Thursday morning, uh, if I say it and then there's something else, I'll be in trouble. Um, but maybe we could do it on Thursday morning. Um, I'll, we'll have to decide tomorrow or the next day. It would be just a, an hour. Then you recite the sutra, and then you recite the mantra, Namo Mivido Dopoya Soha. And you recite the mantra and uh, the sutra, and then eat. You enjoy the, the offerings. So, Ulambana has been a really wonderful, powerful ceremony all these years and all these centuries. And this act of Madhvayana saving his mother based on filial regard has moved people for centuries and centuries. So much so that when you go to Asia, you find this, this single act celebrated everywhere. In Japan, they have, this time of the year, something called Obon Matsuri. Right? Obon is the Japanese version of Ulambana. So Obon has become this huge thing in Japan, way removed from the original act, but still bearing the name and the, and the original idea. Madhvayana saving his mother in China has become a, a folk opera, a play, a, a Chinese opera, it's become a martial arts routine, it's become a, a manga, it's become an anime, it's become a series, you know, it's, it's just, it's a story that is told and retold and told and retold. Um, there is a popular distortion of it which becomes Guijie, ghost celebrate, ghost holiday. Uh, I know monks in Malaysia in particular who went on big campaigns to resurrect Ulambana and put it back on its legs as filial instead of being, oh, we're afraid of the ghosts. You know, it's like, oh, Madhvayana saved his mother. That means the ghost is out there among us. You know, how scary. We love to be afraid of ghosts, right? And then these monks will say, no, 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 no. You missed it. That's not the point at all. This is about doing goodness for, on behalf of people who are suffering in the hills. So that's, that's the story of Ulambana. And tomorrow is the day that it will happen. So it
CTDB. Um, do go to City of 10,000 Buddhas to enjoy it because it's when you get everybody there together, it's incredible. There's these heaps of, of goods in the center of the Buddha Hall at CTDB. Uh, always too many toothbrushes. Way too many toothbrushes. There's just mountains and mountains of toothbrushes. Every Ulambana, you get toothbrushes for three years. And after all these years, we have you know hundreds of to- upstairs. I think at the Berkeley Monastery, two or three monks. Right? We have mm, lots of toothbrushes, <laughs> toothpaste, and people never give shavers. Funny. <laughs> Number one, women, you know, you shave your legs. How often, right? Monks shave their head. Never any shavers. Hint, hint. <laughs> and if there are shavers, there's never any shaving cream. Oh. I remember John Foe one year heard me say that. He gave like nine cans of shit, Gillette shaving foam. You know. So, yeah. So, who would think? No hair, remember? No hair, right? Why? Shave it off. Okay. How do you do it? Anyway, so that's Ulambana. Um, it's quite moving, and the story is really good. Um, there's the, the old... Uh, when I was at, in Middlebury College in Vermont, we had a Chinese chorus, and our choir director, Jamie Pusey, the chorus director, had one Buddhist song. We would do all these Chinese songs. He had one Buddhist song, and it was called Fo Chi, Buddhist song. And it was all about Madhgayana's act. This is a beautiful old melody. so beautiful. That was the first Buddhist song I'd ever heard. And so that, and you know, if you ask what was that song about? I have no idea. You know, it sounds neat, doesn't it? So, Shiri Yoga Mulian sung, in the past there was a monk whose name was Mulian, Magayana. Jiu Muqin Lin Di Yuman. In order to save his mother, he went down to the gates of hell. Jie Wan Ling Shan Yo Do Sha Lu. Please tell me, how far is it to Magic Mountain? Yo Shi Ba Wan, Yo Shi Yo Shi Ba Wan. 
It's more than 80,000 li from here. Namo Omidofu. So that's how that goes. Anyway, it's from the same story. And you just hear the song, you wouldn't know if you didn't know the legend of Ulambana. So, so we need a new uh, Western Ulambana song, and I was working on one today. I don't have it yet, but it would be something, probably, it should have a blues rhythm, I think. Tuesday night, uh, this coming Tuesday, is Tian's night. We should have been there last Tuesday, but I took a break to the mountains and we missed it. So we thought, I talked with uh, Yadola and with Winnie and we uh, got permission to do this coming Tuesday at Tian's. So if you've never been to a Tian's Tuesday night, do come this Tuesday, 7.30. Um, it's, the, it's an evening of Dharma and roundtable conversation, music and fellowship and some of the world's finest tea uh, is there. And people who come regularly uh, tend to come back. It's, it's a group that returns and returns because uh, the, uh, there's real sharing and a chance to look at uh, life's enduring questions um, in a safe environment and also uh, to do so with the blessings of the Tion's Tea Shop. This is on 4th Street here in Berkeley and you go to 4th Street and find Pete's Coffee right there and then it's two stores down as Tion's right across from Sur la Table the, the cooking utensil store. So it's easy to find. It starts at 7.30. We usually end by 9.30 and uh, do consider coming. We're going to meet twice this month, so we're going to try to keep that last Tuesday going, but because of the, uh, the chance to get away, uh, rare for me, uh, we postponed it for a week. So that's coming up Tuesday night at Tion's. Tion's Dharma night. Tea and Dharma. What could be better? Um, our... Winnie, do you want to add anything to that? Is that... That's okay? Sufficient? We'll, we'll send out, try to send out an email to let people know the date has changed. Um, the events, our regular autumn schedule is coming up soon. We're uh, just, uh, we're at the end of summer, heading towards autumn, and we'll be back. We're going to have a brand new calendar all printed up and ready to go in, in a very sh- short time. And as far as I know, everything is the same that we had as before. Um, one thing will be different is Saturday morning Dharma events. And I wanted to propose one. Um, one of our Dharma friends asked about ceremonies and what what are Buddhist ceremonies all about and... 
one of the advantages of going to the Oregon retreat is a chance to do some ceremony. One of the advantages of having a city of 10,000 Buddhas close by is you get to do ceremonies with lots of people together. And if you attended the, um, the Guanyin session, for example, you did lots of reciting of Guanyin's name and the Universal Door Chapter Sutra. So what about that? What is that like? Many of us don't know about devotion, the devotional side of Dharma. Um, even if we've been meditating for years, we may never have been invited to bow, for example. And what about that? What about the bowing? What about the chanting? What about the mantras? What about the sacred names? Namo What about ulambana? What about incense? All these things that are part of the daily life of the monastic community or real Buddha Dharma are new to the West. So I thought it might be fun once a month to have a ceremony ABCs, the ABCs of ceremonies, or Buddhist Ceremonies 101, something like that, a primer course on how to do them, what, what they are, and to see, I have a, a deeper uh, motive, which is I want those ceremonies in English, and I want them available to Westerners in in musical forms that we recognize and can own. Um, that's a big order. That's a tall order. Getting them piece by piece. But I think if we say that we're going to do it, that's a momentum to get the ceremonies underway. Ceremonies should be more than just grit your teeth and wait for the hour to finish, right? Which is often as good as it gets. Sometimes ceremonies are sublime and transforming. You come out of the hall feeling lighter and better and enhanced and transformed. Often you come out kind of just reacting to all that dissonant noise that I didn't understand. You know, what were they doing? Going, you know, they're going so fast and the fish is behind the chanter and what's going on? And I feel nervous and my shoulders are up around my ears because I didn't like what I was hearing. Is that overdramatic? Am I the only one who has that reaction sometimes? Uh, I certainly have that reaction sometimes. And yet, um, I have been part of ceremonies. There are people in the room who have told me that ceremonies bring them to deep tears and release and satisfaction and joy. So that's a big difference from one to the other. What's the difference? I would like to explore that uh, on Saturday morning. And that's the idea anyhow. So nothing concrete, but stay tuned because that, that is in the works. How many folks think they might be interested in a Saturday morning class about ceremonies for us in the West? Okay, that's great. We will proceed with that idea. I think we'll also have Saturday morning sitting. That seems to be a perennial. People love to sit longer than just the hour that we already do. And um, I think probably we won't continue with our Shurangama Mantra recitation um, question about the Puman Pin and the Dabe Chan. 
Uh, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Master Dashing is going to go back to Italy on Monday. We'll miss him. So if you want to hear some Italian Dharma, this is your chance. Dharma in Italian. It's not Italian Dharma. It's Dharma in Italian. Dharma is universal. So anyway, if you wanted to uh, to uh, say, you know, to, to chat with him, please do so quickly because Monday morning is going to come around. But uh, Li Wei and uh, Tian Tian, our other Dharma friends, are going to be uh, going to be at least uh, the young girl has been accepted by the girls' school. We're delighted that she'll be here. Hear more about that later. Okay, um, that's the pretty much the news from Dharma Lake, Lake Wobegon. Hope uh, this week will be a week full of blessings for you. And uh, instead of waiting for blessings to arrive, count the blessings you have and then share the blessings by passing them on. It only requires a thought and yet the rewards are vast and great. So come back next week for more afflictions. <laughs> what could be better? But they resolve in the end. And that the 12 links that are the conclusion are just sublime. Superb. See, we're going to bow to the Buddhas right now and see you next week.